opinions expressed on ACV Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new year of Demand Our Access. I very much appreciate you all supporting the project. I want to thank Ray for hosting and Brad for streaming. Uh, for me today, in case I forget to do so later. Um, our next episode will be January 20th at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, as we do the first and third Saturdays of the month. And both episodes in January, we are going to be talking about Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Title I is a, a very important title. It's Title I because, truthfully, it's probably the biggest reason they passed the law, was to try and improve the employment of people with disabilities. Um, today's episode, uh, we are going to be focusing a lot on important definitions under the law. What do different things mean? It, I will admit that it's kind of dense material. Um, and some of it doesn't apply, I imagine, to a lot of the folks who are listening here, because um, if you are blind, you are obviously, for example, a qualified person with a disability. I am including the information um, because, you know, we do have a website and the podcast goes out to anybody who wants it. And I want to make sure all of the information that I think somebody may need that's related to Title I is provided. Uh, but there is material here that uh, will be new to everyone um, who's not familiar with Title I. And so uh, just hang in there. Uh, and on the 20th, we will be getting into more of the what does it actually say about employing people with disabilities. And then in, in February, we may, if there's interest and I maybe I might need some volunteers, the easiest way to have folks learn and understand the material may be to walk through some scenarios and cover different things that may happen to people either in the job interview process or the application process or what the law calls the interactive process when we talk about getting a reasonable accommodation. So as always, please provide any feedback. Um, I would love to hear it, and if you have any scenarios that you'd like to participate in or ideas that you think we should cover, uh, please let me know. We can certainly extend this beyond January and figure out new ways to help folks better understand the material. So um, please let me know. I'm going to share my audio for about a 26 minute presentation um, and then there will be plenty of time left if folks have questions or comments about today's material. So I'm just going to mute myself and get the presentation going. You are viewing Screen sharing meeting controls. Screen sharing meeting controls. Share preview WND. Demand our access title one episode Jan 6, 2024. Screen sharing meeting controls. Screen sharing meeting controls. Demand our access title one episode Jan 6.
Disclaimer. The information presented in any of the Demand Our Access podcast episodes on the Demand Our Access website or otherwise shared in conjunction with or through association with the Demand Our Access project is expressly not individual legal advice. Applying the law depends on the circumstances and events that comprise every situation. Since legal advice is fact-specific, nothing about the Demand Our Access project can provide an individual, a group of individuals, or an organization legal advice. Introduction during the month of January, I will be covering employment of people with disabilities. Specifically, I will be covering the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC's, regulations describing what compliance with Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act means. The rules on Title I compliance developed by the EEOC are set forth in 29 CFR Section 1630. To make this easier to follow, I'm not going to review all of the citations in this episode. As always, links to the information covered here will be provided on the Demand Our Access website in the show notes accompanying this episode. Given the amount of information in Title I compliance, I have divided the material up so it fits into two episodes. In this episode, I will be largely defining important terms under Title I. In the next episode, I will be applying those terms to demonstrate how Title I works. I'm also hoping that by leaving some time in both episodes, there will be enough time for questions and comments. If you are not participating in the live version, you can email me at jonathan at demandouraccess.com with any questions or comments you may have. You can also fill out the contact form at Demand Our Access. Even though I don't like the word impairment, the reality is it is used in the law and every publication about the law. So it is not possible to produce a presentation about Title I that doesn't contain lots of uses of the word impairment and other words many of us with disabilities don't use. I will not be covering every aspect of Title I. Specifically, I'm not going to cover things that largely or completely relate only to employers, drug abuse, and additional concepts 
that I don't believe are relevant to most people with disabilities. Before getting into the material under Title I, I want to let you know that some of the material covered in this episode will be a review for those of you who have followed my presentations on Titles 2 and 3. I'm repeating myself in areas like defining a disability so that people who have not reviewed the material on Titles 2 and 3 will get what they need from my coverage of Title I. That being said, I will be getting into concepts that are unique to Title I during this episode. If you have heard my presentations on Titles 2 and 3, there will be new information for you in this episode. Title I. Important Things to Know. For any employer to be covered by Title I, it must have at least 15 employees. The United States government is not subject to the provisions of Title I. However, Section 501 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 provides similar protections for federal uh, positions. I will be covering sections of the Rehabilitation Act later this year. To be clear, state and local governments are covered by Title I. If you work or if you are interested in working for a state or local government, what I am covering here applies to you. Private membership clubs, excluding labor organizations, are not covered by Title I. So basically what that one means is unions are covered by Title I, but a lot of private membership organizations aren't. Religious institutions are covered by Title I. And if you remember, they are not covered by Title III, so this is a difference here. But they may give preference to people with their religious affiliation. So a religious organization can prefer uh, people of their religious faith. Members of the clergy and people performing essentially religious functions are excluded from the provisions of Title I. Individuals with Disabilities Title I, like Titles II and III, protects three categories of individuals with disabilities. Individuals who have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. Individuals who have a record of a physical or mental impairment that substantially limited one or more of the major life activities. Individuals who are regarded as having such an impairment, whether they have the impairment or not. Uh, 
physical or mental impairment. Physical disabilities include physiological disorders, cosmetic disfigurement, anatomical loss affecting one or more critical body systems. Mental disabilities include mental or psychological disorders such as organic brain syndrome, emotional or mental illness, and specific learning disabilities. I'm not going to list any of the qualifying disabilities listed in the law because the ADA Amendments Act of 2008 requires broad coverage. Substantial limitation of a major life activity. An impairment substantially interferes with the accomplishment of a major life activity when the individual's important life activities are restricted as to the conditions, manner, or duration under which they can be performed in comparison to most people. The consideration of whether a disability substantially limits a major life activity is not intended to require extensive analysis. The law is focused on determining whether the employer violated the law and discriminated on the basis of disability. Temporary impairments. Temporary impairments are covered as long as the impairment substantially limits a major life activity. The issue of whether a temporary impairment is significant enough to be a disability must be resolved on a case-by-case -case basis, taking into consideration both the duration or expected duration of the impairment and the extent to which it actually limits a major life activity of the affected individual. To be considered temporary, an impairment must be expected to last no longer than six months. Mitigating measures. In most instances, whether a person has a disability does not depend on their ability to limit the ways their condition substantially limits a major life activity. A person with severe hearing loss is considered disabled even though their hearing can be greatly improved through the use of a hearing aid. Someone whose epilepsy can be controlled through the use of medication is still considered disabled. The exception to this is the impact of ordinary eyeglasses and contact lenses on an individual's ability to see. If the use of ordinary eyeglasses 
or contact lenses improves someone's vision to the point where they are not considered low vision. They are not considered disabled under the law. Record of a substantial impairment. A record of a physical or mental impairment that substantially limited one or more major life activity is covered by the ADA. This protected group includes a person who has a history of an impairment that substantially limited a major life activity but who has recovered from the impairment, people who have been misclassified as having an impairment, regarded as disabled. The ADA protects certain people when they are regarded as having a disability that substantially limits one or more major life activity when they do not. Typically, this happens under one of the following three situations. An individual who has a physical or mental impairment that does not substantially limit a major life activity but who is treated as if the impairment does substantially limit a major life activity. An individual who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity only as a result of the attitudes of others toward the impairment. An individual who has no impairments but who is treated by an employer as having an impairment. Qualified person with a disability. A qualified person with a disability under Title I is someone who satisfies the requisite skill, experience, education, and other job-related requirements of the employment position such individual holds or desires to hold and or with or without reasonable accommodation can perform the essential functions of the position. Essential functions of a job. Essential functions of a job are those that are fundamental job duties of the employment position the individual with a disability holds or desires to hold. The term essential functions does not include the marginal functions of the position. A job function may be considered essential for any of several reasons, including but not limited to the following. The function may be essential because the reason the position exists is to perform that function. The function may be essential because of the limited number of employees available among whom the performance of that job function can be distributed. The function may be highly specialized so that the 
incumbent in the position is hired for his or her experience or ability to perform the particular function. Evidence as to whether a particular function is essential includes, but is not limited to, the following. The employer's judgment as to which functions are essential. Written job descriptions prepared before advertising or interviewing applicants for the job. The amount of time spent on the job performing the function. The consequences of not requiring the incumbent to perform the function. The terms of a collective bargaining agreement. The work experience of past incumbents in the job. The current work experience of incumbents in similar jobs. Reasonable accommodation. The term reasonable accommodation means modifications or adjustments to a job application process that enable a qualified applicant with a disability to be considered for the position. Modifications or adjustments to the work environment or to the manner or circumstances under which the position held or desired is customarily performed that enable the individual with a disability who is qualified to perform the essential functions of the position. Modifications or adjustments that enable an employee with a disability to enjoy equal benefits and privileges of employment as are enjoyed by similarly situated employees without disabilities. And what they mean by that one is the benefits of your job, your health care benefits, your retirement benefits. You're supposed to have the same access to all of that stuff and the privileges. If the employer, for example, takes employees out to dinner for a party. Uh, that party is supposed to be accessible to you as a privilege of your employment. Reasonable accommodations may include, but are not limited to, the following. Making existing facilities used by employees readily accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. Job restructuring part-time or modified work schedules, reassignment to a vacant position, acquisition or modification of equipment or devices, appropriate adjustment or modification of examinations, training materials, uh, or policies, the provision of qualified readers or interpreters, and other similar accommodations for individuals with disabilities. 
To determine the appropriate reasonable accommodation, it may be necessary for an employer to initiate an informal interactive process. The interactive process should examine the precise limitations resulting from the disability and potential reasonable accommodations that could overcome those limitations. Employers are required, absent undue hardship, to provide reasonable accommodations to an otherwise qualified individual with a disability who meets the definition of a disability under the actual disability prong or the record of a disability prong of the tests to determine whether someone has a qualifying disability. This means that someone who is regarded as having a disability but who does not actually have a disability is not entitled to reasonable accommodations under Title I. Undue hardship. Factors to be considered when examining whether a particular accommodation constitutes an undue hardship on the employer include the nature and net cost of the accommodation needed under Title I, taking into consideration the availability of tax credits and deductions and or outside funding. The overall financial resources of the facility or facilities involved in the provision of the reasonable accommodation, the number of persons employed at such facility and the effect on the expenses and resources. The overall financial resources of the covered entity, the overall size of the business of the covered entity with respect to the number of its employees and the number, type, and location of its facilities the type of operation or operations of the covered entity including the composition, structure, and functions of the workforce of such entity and the geographic separateness and administrative or fiscal relationship of the facility or facilities in question to the covered entity. The impact of the accommodation upon the operation of the facility including the impact on the ability of other employees to perform their duties and the impact on the facility's ability to conduct business. Qualification standards. The personal and professional attributes, including the skill, experience, education, and physical, medical, safety, and other requirements established by a covered entity, 
as requirements which an individual must meet in order to be eligible for the position held or desired. So what that is talking about is it's basically saying the employer has the right to determine the qualifications for the position that they are offering. Direct threat. Direct threat means a significant risk of substantial harm to the health or safety of the individual or others that cannot be eliminated or reduced by reasonable accommodation. The determination that an individual poses a direct threat shall be based on an individualized assessment of the individual's present ability to safely perform the essential functions of the job. This assessment shall be based on a reasonable medical judgment that relies on the most current medical knowledge and or on the best available subjective evidence. In determining whether an individual would pose a direct threat, the factors to be considered include the duration of the risk, the nature and severity of the potential harm, the likelihood that the potential harm will occur, the imminence of the potential harm. So that concludes our look at important definitions and concepts under Title I. In our next episode, we will be applying these concepts to see what rights we have and what employers must do under Title I to include those of us with disabilities. Screen sharing meeting controls. Jonathan Simeone has stopped screen share. Okay, I am back. Um, that does conclude the pre-recorded portion. Um, I just want to say, uh, as I said in the beginning, that material is very dense. Uh, some of it may not apply to the folks listening, but I think it's important to include that stuff for people who come upon the website and the podcast uh, and may need that information. Um, so that's why it's there. I also want to say the definition of uh, uh, listening to it, the definition of undue hardship is um, a hot mess. And um, it it's not even an easy thing um, to read and work through. So what you need to know about undue hardship at its core really is about the size of the employer. So a larger employer would have more responsibility to provide reasonable accommodations. And by large, I mean more money available um, to spend. So if, you, if you're working at a 15-person small business, Obviously, the amount of money they have to spend and the effort they have to spend providing reasonable accommodations is not going to be the same as a Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the essence, really, um, of undue hardship. 
That doesn't mean that smaller businesses don't have to do anything. It just means that they're probably not going to be required to do as much. Um, I don't know if we're going to have any questions or comments. There are some things that would be interesting to discuss um, if folks want to. So let's open it up and see if we have any raised hands. All right. Not at this. We do not have any raised hands at this time. But um, if you would so, like to raise your hand, I will be glad to call on you and um, uh, ask any questions. If you're in Clubhouse, uh, go ahead and make make it known you want to participate, and Brad will um, get you get you hooked up so you can ask a question, make a comment. So right now. Right now, we don't have any uh, hands, Jonathan. And I thought this may be um, because of the, the how dense this material is that um, we may not have a lot of um, audience engagement today. You uh, do have and, one. Oh, we do. You have, have one. one. Um, okay. Stacy Smith, um, you should now be able to unmute and ask your question. Go ahead. Hello, Stacy. There she is. Okay, am I being muted? Yes, yes, we hear you. Okay, uh, first time for, for a webinar. Uh, um, years ago, uh, and I wonder if this still applies to today, um, I worked at a hospital and um, I had a, um, I'm just asking this because of instructability or not. Um, I uh, worked with um, MS Dawson. I know no, no, no system has that today. Uh, but um, I was on a computer. And I know we're working with uh, Windows systems today and or uh, iOS systems. And I started working with uh, Windows 3 at the time, but it didn't make any difference. And I also uh, started working uh, later on with Windows um, 95. And then, I mean, you know, later after I was, okay, fired or something, you know, from the hospital and other things. Yeah. So I know of Windows systems. Uh-huh. And and then I got later on I got Windows Seven so forth. Um, but the thing is, the thing I'm trying to say is that I could never have been fast enough to work with the other people in the um, in the hospital. Uh, by the time I checked, uh oh. Oh, I think I did not. I, I did not. Idea. I did not remove her permission to yeah. talk. Stacy, by the way, uh, for future calls, just maybe to have some help get check this out. You do sound a little overmodulated, just so you just to make you aware. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I think the, the gist of the question is that what if you can't do the job as fast as other people? Mm -hmm. um, I think that seems to be the gist of where Stacy was going. And that is an interesting question. And that is the kind of thing that often comes up, I think, in these areas. And so I think, first of all, 
whether we like it or not, uh, some tasks do take longer because oftentimes the assistive technology is an add-on. Um, things are not uh, as easy. Um, and sometimes we all know, to be totally blunt, there are systems at my job that are not at all accessible to me. So it's not even a timing issue. It's a you can't do that issue. <laughs> Um, and so to be totally honest about this, this is an area where people filing complaints, in my view, can make a major, major difference. The reason I say that is a whole host of systems that I know, because I have to use them in my job and other folks that I know have to use them in their jobs, are not fully accessible and in some cases not at all accessible. Uh, this is literally holding back the promise of those of us who have to use assistive technologies made by Title I. And so filing complaints, raising the issues, will force the EEOC to move on companies that make, for example, benefits software or maybe even Adobe, because the Adobe software um, to create PDFs uh, has major uh, accessibility issues, even related, even related, excuse me, to remediating the PDFs. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the ways we can improve the opportunities for those of us who are blind and those of us who uh, are low vision is to force the government to hold software developers accountable for a lack of compliance. It would be really good if someday the EEOC promulgated a rule on web accessibility like we have coming under Title II as promulgated by the Department of Justice that clearly tells employers and software developers what the rules of the road are for web accessibility under Title I. But mm -hmm. as far as what happens when the time you really are slower, and truthfully, that is going to depend on a lot of factors. It's going to depend on how essential a function of the job is it? How essential is it that it be done at a certain speed? And there are circumstances where those things could be considered essential functions of the job and where the timing matters. And here's another issue with Title I. All of the stuff we're covering sounds pretty good, especially when we get into next week and in the next episode, excuse me, on the 20th, not next week. And you see what all the rights are and what the responsibilities of employers are. But here's the truth of all of that. Uh, the employer has a lot of unilateral discretion to determine what is a reasonable accommodation, what is not a reasonable accommodation, what is an undue hardship, what is not an undue hardship. And unless you're able or willing to file complaints or to talk to them about the law, um, and why it is a reasonable accommodation, why it is not an undue hardship, uh, you are going to have trouble with a lot of employers. And I wish 
I could say something different, uh, but just to be completely transparent about this, uh, at my jobs, I have gotten accommodations that other people did not get uh, because I knew how to get them. When I've come across that, I have helped people try to get the accommodations that I have. But it really does make a difference. And that's why even if sometimes this material seems overwhelming or boring, you really should sit with it and see if you can um, figure out what you need to learn. Because when you get into what the law calls the interactive process, your ability to state your case to your employer is going to matter. The other thing that I would do is make all of my accommodation requests in writing. Mm -hmm. So there is a paper trail uh, yeah. if that becomes an issue later. Um, if you go to a meeting with your employer and the employer is not putting stuff in writing and you don't like the way the meeting went, write a summary of the meeting and send it to the employer and say, this is my understanding of what we talked about. Um, and if they don't agree with you, they will have to come back. And it's a way of either changing um, their mind, because now it's in writing. A lot of times people say things verbally <laughs> that they <laughs> will not say in writing. And that's just a fact of life. Um, so do a lot of this in writing is my would be my advice. Um, do we have any other hands? We do. Um, Brad, you got somebody in Clubhouse there? Yes, I do. We have Deanne on stage. Go ahead, Deanne. Okay. Hello, Deanne. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I The gal that was just speaking, she kind of covered part of my concern. But one of the things that I've encountered over the years, and I'm going to say specifically back in the 90s, <laughs> was that um, sometimes the taking the um, the at, at the like job fairs, taking the ex evaluations to get into jobs that required you being able to type at a different at a specific speed were not accessible. So if you couldn't pass the if you couldn't pass the interview test, then you couldn't get the job. And that, and oftentimes doing the interview in the interview process, the problem was is you wouldn't have been doing it the same way you would have been on the job when you had the exactly. accommodation. That is exactly right. And so uh, we will have more about this on the 20th. But um, since mm -hmm. you were uh, are participating, what I will say for now is that those things are supposed to be accommodated. So the same accommodations that you would get in the office are supposed to be provided through job fairs. Now, here's where that becomes dicey. We all know that job fairs don't have the same, I've been to many myself, don't have the same system set up. So uh, one thing that I would do in, and have done is I would try to find out from the job fair place the list of participating companies ahead of time. And I would be interested in seeing uh, which ones I wanted to go to. And then, and let's be honest about this, if you're, if you're blind, uh, just assuming that you're blind or low vision, um, mm -hmm. 
our disabilities are going to be pretty obvious to a job fair. <laughs> so in this case, you don't have the issue of when to disclose and when not to disclose because you're disclosing the minute you show up. <laughs> uh, so in this case, what I would do is ask the job fair people are what, if you know, what are the vendors going to be doing offer jobs? And then I would just be very upfront and say, I'm going to need an accommodation for this or that. Um, now, obviously, if you don't find out about the job fair until the last minute, doing that is going to be harder. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, going there and saying and even telling them, I'm interested in this. So, like, let's say you brought up typing. If I walked up to a job fair and I had no idea they were going to require me to demonstrate my typing proficiency, there are two things that would come to mind for me. One is, is typing at a certain speed an essential function of the job? A lot of people say it is. Like, somebody would say, typing is an essential function of my job. I write all day, right? But is typing at a certain speed an essential function mm. of my job? Mm. I would say no, because I'm not doing dictation. I'm not doing transcription. I am typing up presentations like this <laughs> and other things. So that's where I think you the argument is, is typing at a certain speed an essential function of the job? Because in many instances, truthfully, it is not. Uh, I can't think of a job uh, of all the people that I work with where I would consider the speed of typing to be an essential function of the job. Hmm? Working for a call center, working for a call center, would you consider it essential function for the job? It depends how they do it. It depends how the call center does the the work. Um, so, if if you have to type notes in a thirty second window, then obviously that would be a difference. They may be able to claim that, but I think they claim it's an essential function a lot more than it really is. Because a lot of times we don't ask the follow-up question, right? Like people say, typing is an essential function of the job. Mm -hmm. I agree. Many jobs, typing is an essential function of the job. But is mm -hmm. typing at a certain speed? And then we mm -hmm. have the, the further question, is the speed that they say is essential, is that really the essential speed? Or is that an arbitrary number that they actually can't prove they actually so there's a lot of things that go into this but as far as for the interview process i would say i'm interested in this if i walked up and it was a completely inaccessible kiosk i would say i want to i'm interested in this job i'm going to need to do this test at a different location uh, I'm going to have to have an accommodation to do this that, that can't be delivered here. Um, and mm -hmm. you may have some better luck with that at a job fair because typically they don't want to alienate the organization that's sponsoring the job fair. Um, like if it's a school or a civic organization, there's some nonprofit job fairs. 
Um, they may even help you get a better deal on an accommodation than a presenter might not ordinarily make. So those are things that I personally would look at if I was faced with that kind of a situation. And then, and then the second kind of scenario or second uh, situation I'll bring up, because I know it's even more common now than it was when I encountered it, um, you having to have more than one job to make ends meet, or you have, or you being employed one place and then employed a second place to come up with forty hours. Um, my situation, and this was back in the nineties, shortly after the ADA became available, mm -hmm. it was it was an issue actually that was um, became an issue with VR not wanting to provide accessibility accommodations for two different jobs that I had for 20 hours a week. The same equipment, and I was working in the same building, but for two different organizations using two different computer systems. And mm -hmm. um, anyway, VR did not want to provide the accessibility for one, but they would the other. And the for employers one job, did, but not the other. Right. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and and the employers, of course, at that point in time, were it was new to they were new to learning about the ADA, but mm -hmm. they were arguing over because it was a contract job. I mean, so. Anyway, what ended up happening is I, I basically had to leave one job because they did not want to take responsibility for providing the accessibility that VR wouldn't provide. Right. So contracting jobs are different, um, uh, you know, because you're not considered a full-time employee of the employer. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a different standard. Um, now, the VR question that is an interesting one. And uh, again, uh, remember the disclaimer ACB plays before the beginning of the show. So <laughs> what I'm about to say is my opinion. <laughs> I think others will agree with me, but I just want to be clear about that. My view, uh, I've been involved in rehab uh, since the 90s in several different states. And my view is, in some instances, the services have really downgraded. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot more uh, not providing than providing. Uh, and that kind of thing, what the rehab services are supposed to do is covered under a totally different law, which we will be getting to. Um, so if people want to get to that sooner than um, later, please always contact me through the website or jonathan at demandrxs.com. Uh, I'd be happy to move by, uh, my own schedules around if there's need for that. Um, but in my, I just want to say it's sad to me that you would have to give up a job because rehab doesn't want to help uh, provide stuff to enable you to do the job. I think that's mm -hmm. Um, a, a sad state of affairs. Um, I would say that, and I don't like saying this, but I'm just being real with folks. Uh, unless you have your own equipment that you're willing to use on the job, contracting is going to be a difficult animal to go. Uh, you're going to have a lot harder time finding mm -hmm. that kind of work. 
Um, exactly, and that's why I learned that. Um, we do have another person, so okay. so we should. Um, but thank you for your participation, mm -hmm. and I hope we. I hope you visit us again. All right, mm -hmm. and we have one hand, uh, Desiree Sturdivant. You can. You now should be able to unmute. <laughs> Oh, I thought I'd change that. Nope. <laughs> um, so, and, and I don't want to take from the, the other person that was talking. I just kind of had a, a an interesting thought. You know, it seems like the burden on us isn't necessarily just knowing our rights, but going to an interview armed with uh, what we expect to be accommodated with and then the different ways that um, they can accommodate yes. Um, so what, what, and, and I don't know if, you know, I guess when, if you're in an interview and they say, do you have any questions for us? And that's where you would say, you know, what, what exactly, I, I guess, how do you verbalize? Um, so some of this is really depends on how you read the person interviewing you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like sometimes you can tell, like they're totally freaked out by disability and accommodation and they're, to be blunt, looking for reasons not to hire you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but sometimes you can just tell. Yeah. And in yep. those situations, mm -hmm. uh, what I do is I would talk openly about the accommodations that I need, the help that I can get if it's there. Like, for example, if you have when I got my first job with the city of Portland, uh, the commission for the blind uh, was willing to um, help me uh, get some uh, training uh, around some O&M training and stuff like that. And so I talked about all that and I talked about, um, you know, a JAWS license that I had access to and things like that. Um, so uh, there was, a, and I, I tried to make it as easy as I, I could. Now, there were things that I needed, uh, for example, like uh, I, I wanted a Braille display. I, I probably could have gotten by without it, but I wanted one. And, um, you know, so that one I didn't bring up until I already had the job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so some of this stuff is, is strategy, right? It's when to bring things up and when... And just again, to be real, the type of employer you're going to is going to make more of a difference than it should. Um, a governmental employer is always going to be a better bet. Uh, a larger employer is going to be a better bet because of the undue hardship is a much more difficult barrier for them to overcome. Uh, in a perfect world, I think there would be more done by the government and rehab agencies to help people when they get a job and to help people when they're on the job to retain the job. You better do um, it in six months or they're going to close your case yeah, out. But, but that's not <laughs> where we are. So I think I would give a preference to governmental employers and larger employers, mm -hmm. um, not to say small businesses won't accommodate you, but that's obviously a case by case thing. And the other thing that I would say about this is, uh, and it's beyond the scope of our podcast today, but there are tax incentives that employers can use when they have to accommodate. 
And uh, if you learn about those, I would tell them, hey, you can use, you may have to pay for this, but here are the tax breaks you have. Mm-hmm. Here are the things that come with that. And we can cover that in another episode if people find it interesting. But, but I mean, the truth of it is, and this is just being real, if someone just decides they don't want to hire a person with a disability and they don't want to accommodate a person with a disability, uh, they can find a reason to not hire you, right? And in the vast majority of those cases, you're not going to be able to prove it was discrimination, even though it clearly was, right? Um, And so the law just doesn't it's it's better than not having a Title One, uh, and knowing Title One is better than not knowing Title One. <laughs> but uh, it's it doesn't go far enough in my view. It gives too much leeway uh, to the employer. Um, I think there would have been ways to structure the law so that it was a little more fair uh, than they did. But it is what we have. So that would be my advice. Okay. Thanks. Do we have anyone else? No, you do not. And it is almost out of time. So, yes, three minutes to the hour. With that, uh, I want to thank people uh, for their questions and comments. I want to thank Ray and Brad again for assisting me today. I really appreciate that. I want to thank Cindy and the ACB community folks. Uh, for allowing me this platform to reach more people than I would ever reach without it. Um, And I hope everyone has a a great couple weeks, and we'll see you again on January 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern to continue our look at Title I and the employment of those of us with disabilities.